Last week was kind of a hard message. I had several people tell me that was a hard message. I said, yeah, I know it was. All right, I want to start by, I want to read two scriptures to you. I want us to go to, I had this up there, I don't know, uh, Miss Andrea, if, if I left that up there, but Numbers 32, 6 and 8, I think I maybe had taken that out, but let's go there, Numbers chapter 32, verses 6 through 8. So we're talking today about worship as warfare. In fact, we're going to talk about this um, as we lead up to Easter. So remember, the theme as we are leading up to Easter is reflection, repentance, and renewal. Reflection, repentance, and renewal. But I'm going to talk to you specifically today and probably next week about this idea that Our worship is warfare, the warfare of our worship. So let me read to you, um, let me begin in Numbers chapter 32, beginning in verse 6. Now this uh, this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel. And to give you the context here, the children of Israel are getting ready to go into the promised land. They've they've wandered 40 years in the desert. And if you remember the story, they come out of Egypt and they go right to the promised land. It doesn't take them 40 years to get to the promised land. They, They go right to the promised land just in a short period of time. But when they get to the promised land, God tells them, send a representative from each tribe, 12 tribes, send a spy into the land. So they sent 12 spies into the land to spy out the land because they're getting ready to go in and take possession of the land. And they go in and they see all that the land possesses. They, they had grape, clusters of grapes so large they had to carry them between two men on a pole. They called it a land that flowed with milk and honey. Everything was big in the land, including the people. And so they go and they scope out the land. And they come back. And ten of the spies said, we can't do this because the people are too big. The cities are too strong. They're giants. And we're like grasshoppers in their sight. Two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, said... We must go into the land because God has given us the land and those people are bred to us and we will eat them up. We will not die. We will not be defeated. It doesn't matter how big they are. Our God is bigger. Why? Because God's given us something bigger, more powerful, stronger than hyper-mega-dynamite. They said, God is on our side. God is our secret weapon. God is the one that will give us the victory. It doesn't matter how big those giants are, how strong their cities are. God's told us to go. We've got to go. But guess who prevailed? The naysayers, the cowards, convinced all the people, if you go into there, you're going to die. So God says, don't worry about it. I'll let you wander in the wilderness for 40 years till all you guys die. And then I'll send a new generation in. Guess what they said when God told them that? Oh, no, wait a minute, God. We're, we're, we're ready to go now. God says, not too late. Only two of you will go into the land. That's going to be Joshua and Caleb because they were the only two that had faith to do what I commanded them to do. And So Israel wandered for 40 years, literally until that generation died in the wilderness. So all those men, all those people who said, we can't do it, God let them die in the wilderness. And then they come to the promised land, and this is kind of where we're at here. And they've defeated the tribes on the other side of the Jordan River, and there were two tribes 
that wanted to settle on the other side of the river. And it kind of caused a controversy. But Moses said, no, it's okay. You can settle there. We'll, we'll let you settle on that side of the river. But here's the thing. Make sure that you don't stay on that side of the river and sit there while your brothers are joining the battle and fighting the enemy to take the land. Because God says, I'm assembling my army, and when I assemble my army, all of my army is to assemble. Part of my army is not going to sit and do nothing while the rest of my army is fighting the war, fighting the battle. So listen to the words of Moses to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben. Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now, why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going, going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. God says, this is like what your fathers did 40 years ago when they discouraged the children of Israel from going into the land because they were afraid to go and fight. So here's the principle I want you to get. That God calls all of his army to come together to conduct his warfare. Our worship is warfare. Now let me read two other scriptures to you. Luke chapter 10, verse 2 and 3. Let's go there. Now we saw what Moses said to the children of Gad and the children of Reuben, the children of Israel, about coming together, fighting together, because they are an army. And that's what armies do. They fight together. Now we come to the New Testament. And in Luke chapter 10, let's just begin in verse 1. Because verse, verse 1 gives us the context of what Jesus is saying here. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. So he's got his 12 disciples, right? He's got his 12 that, that go with him. He appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So Jesus is getting ready to go into certain cities, into, into certain places. And what, what is Jesus doing? He's declaring the kingdom. He's declaring the good news. He's fulfilling what the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would fulfill. He is that fulfillment. He has come. They're not looking for a Messiah any longer. The Messiah is there and he is going into cities and into places and he is declaring the kingdom. Or we could say it like this. He is going into the land and he is taking the land. He is vanquishing his enemies and he is taking ground. And so before Jesus goes in, he's sending these these disciples before him. Verse 2. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold... I send you out as lambs among wolves. So they go out. And you skip down to verse 17. Look at verse 17. It says, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So worship 
is warfare. That does not mean that we do not love or that love is contrary to warfare because love is not contrary to warfare. My dad was in World War II. There are men in this city, some still alive, who witnessed the horror of those concentration camps that were liberated at the end of World War II. And many of those men fought long and hard and shed blood, their own blood and others' blood, so that they could come to a place and bring liberty to those held captive. Now that doesn't mean that everyone who fights a war fights it with noble motives. It doesn't mean every war is a just war. Because God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. He uses sinful men to fight his battles. But the point of the battle is that God would achieve his victory. So when we talk about worship and warfare, we're not talking about contrary, conflicting ideas. When we talk about love and war, we're not talking about conflicting ideas. They can be, but they're not necessarily. To those people that were liberated from those concentration camps, I believe they were probably very thankful for all the bullets and all the bombs that brought those liberating armies to their doorsteps and opened those gates to allow them to walk free and literally save their lives. So we may not think of worship as warfare, but it is an aspect of worship. Warfare is that the scripture presents to us. Therefore, our worship and our warfare have real eternal consequences. There are people all around us in bondage to sin and death. And the consequence of their bondage to sin and death is worse than any fate any one of us would ever suffer in a concentration camp. Because a concentration camp may destroy our physical bodies and we could still spend eternity with the Lord. But for those who are in bondage to sin and death, if they, if they come to their end, if they come to the end of this visitation on earth, still in bondage to sin and death, the only thing they have to look forward to is eternal destruction. And judgment for their sin and their death. The gates of hell are real, just like the gates of those concentration camps were real. The gates of hell are real, even if we cannot see them with our natural eyes, and they are holding people in real and deadly bondage. And unless they are set free, those people held in that real and deadly bondage will die, eternally separated from God. So we see here in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sending out his disciples. And it's interesting, he says in verse 3, Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Now what? good shepherd would send his lambs out among wolves. The Bible is very clear in John 10 that Jesus is the good shepherd. But it doesn't sound very good or very shepherdly to send your lambs out among wolves. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And when they came back, if you can, if you can catch the tone and the tenor of those, listen, then the 70 returned with joy. Now, Jesus, remember, says, Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. If you are being sent out by Jesus, and the parting words of Jesus is said, Hey, bye. By the way, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. What might you think about what's going to happen to you as you go out among the wolves? 
you might think, hmm, I know what lambs are. Not, not sheep, but lambs. He didn't say sheep. He said lambs. You know what a lamb is? It's a baby sheep. I send you out as baby sheep among ravaging wolves. You might think, well, I guess Jesus is sending me to my death. Because that's what it sure sounds like. But lo and behold, what happened? The 70 come back with joy and they're rejoicing saying, even the demons are subject to us. They were excited. You know why they were excited? Because they didn't get eaten up by the wolves. In fact, they seem to have power over the wolves. Not just the wolves, but they had power over the demons. And they were really pumped up and excited. And then Jesus reminded them, that's all fine and good. But that's not really the reason you have to rejoice. The real reason you have to rejoice is that your name is written in heaven. And why would Jesus say that? Because Jesus understands that warfare is real and warfare is deadly. And not every sheep he sends out may come back physically alive. But he says, listen, don't worry. If they kill your body, don't be afraid of that because they can't kill your soul. And this is what he's telling them. Don't rejoice because the demons are subject to you. Rejoice because your name is written in heaven. Because as his 12 apostles found out, if we believe church history and church tradition, the Bible doesn't tell us. All but one was martyred. And there were many, many more that were martyred besides them. But they didn't die because their names were written in heaven. They didn't lose the war because they were martyred they had already won the victory because their names were written in heaven. And who wrote them there? Jesus wrote them there. So this is what we see here. I send you out as lambs among wolves, but they come back rejoicing because they had power. And Jesus uses this language that sounds like war. He's talking about enemies. He's talking about falling like lightning from heaven. He's talking about power over the enemy. That nothing shall by any means hurt you. He's talking about having authority to trample serpents and scorpions. Jesus sends them out as laborers in the harvest. What, what did he begin this with? He began that discourse with these words, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And he sends his laborers out, but he sends them out as lambs among wolves. He authorizes them. He authorizes these little lambs. And he warns them as soldiers being sent out. He addresses them like any good commander would. He authorizes them like any com good commander would. And he warns them as any good commander would. And he sends them out into the battle. Now, let's read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. I'm going to read a number of scriptures to you. And I'm reading these scriptures to you because I want you to begin to I think we have a, this paradigm in the church. We've got this idea that Jesus is not into conquering. He's just all about love. We get this idea that somehow love has nothing to do with war. We somehow have this idea that we can just passively sit by and do nothing and hope everything's going to work out right. 
But yet when we read the actual words of the Bible, when we read Scripture, when we read the writings of the prophets, when we read the writings of the apostles, when we read the very words of God and the very words of Jesus, we see that it is telling us from beginning to end, it's painting this picture that we are a force, we are an army, and God has sent us out into the land to conquer And if we don't think that's going to be offensive, we don't understand warfare. And that's one of the main problems with the church today. We don't understand warfare. We don't want to be offensive. How can you conduct a war and not be offensive? You can't. Well, either God is lying to us or he's somehow different. Well, no, wait a minute, though, because Jesus is using this language, too. So, hmm, if Jesus is using that language, then, then maybe, maybe, maybe we've got something wrong. Maybe we have misunderstood. Maybe we've just bought into what the world wants us to believe. You ever heard of Propaganda. Not the black rapper guys. In World War II, this was one of the things. They, they had one of the greatest weapons that each side used against each other was propaganda. And they would do things and say things to make others believe a lie. Do you think your enemy, the devil, uses propaganda against you? Go back to Genesis. You see it right in the beginning. What was it? He used propaganda to deceive Adam and Eve. He didn't use, he didn't use a weapon. He didn't use a sword. He didn't, he didn't physically accost them or assault them. He very subtly used propaganda. He took words that were true and he twisted them just a little bit to make them sound true enough that Think about that long enough and I I could start to believe that. Present it to me consistently enough and I will begin to believe that. Flash the image. Give the message consistently and long enough and people will begin to believe it if that's what they're consuming. So the enemy... The powers and principalities, the devil is still using propaganda to convince the church she is not who God tells her that she is and that she should not be doing the things that the scripture reveal that we should be doing. Instead, he's lulled the church into this idea that we should just be compromising, that we should just lay down, that we shouldn't offend people, that Hey, if the truth offends people, maybe we shouldn't tell them the truth because they might get offended. Well, if we don't tell them the truth, how can they ever be set free? Because only the truth will set us free. Now listen, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise, Jesus likewise, shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus came to release those who were in bondage. Jesus came to destroy the devil to conquer him who had power over death so that he could set those who have been all their lives subject to this bondage. Picture the good guys going in to the concentration camps and opening the gates and freeing the captives. Or 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The devil, through his deception, brought man to this place. Man willingly 
disobeyed God, but it was through the propaganda, the deception, the lie of the enemy, and through that lie, sin entered in, and now sin holds humanity captive in bondage. Why did Jesus come? He came to destroy. I want you to highlight that word in your Bible. Because there's a lot of Christians, I go to meetings with them all the time, there are a lot of Christians who think destruction and Jesus are mutually exclusive terms, that Jesus wouldn't destroy anything because Jesus is love and peace and sugar and spice and everything nice. And he would not dream of destroying anything because destruction is contrary to who God is. Really? Read your Bible. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested to destroy. What do armies do? They destroy things that need to be destroyed for the purpose of bringing about good and noble purposes. Who, who, who created armies? Who assembled the first army? Well, God did. And we have found that armies are necessary ever since then. Now, I'm not talking, don't get me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying, church. I'm not, I'm not talking about earthly armies. I mean, I know we have them and they're necessary. But that's not that kind of army that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about earthly warfare, natural warfare. I'm talking about spiritual warfare. For this reason, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. To release and to liberate those who are subject to bondage. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul writes in Colossians 2.15, speaking of Jesus again, having disarmed principalities and power, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now you might not see it here in the English translation, but in the original Greek text, this is presenting a very vivid picture that the, the hearers, the readers that Paul was writing to would have immediately envisioned in their mind. If I said to you, are you ready? Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, what do you picture? Depending on your age, depending on how old you are, immediately a picture of Bullwinkle the Moose floating in the air comes to my mind. Along with all these other cartoon characters and bands and floats and Right? Well, when Paul writes this, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle, spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That's a picture of a parade, but it's a very different kind of parade than the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It's a parade commemorating the victory of war. And it's a parade in which the victory assembles all of the captives, the people he's defeated. He gets the strongest ones, the best ones. He puts them in chains and they parade them through the streets in the middle of the crowds of the victorious, you know, nation. This is what Rome would do. Caesar would have a victory parade after every victory and they would go down Main Street, Rome, and they'd get all the people and they'd assemble the people and they'd have this parade and they would make a public spectacle of those that had been defeated. This is what's pictured here in Colossians 2.15. So when the people in Colossae read this letter, when the church there, when the Colossians read this letter from Paul and they read this line, having triumphed, uh, triumphing over them in it, this is exactly what they pictured. They pictured a military victory parade in which the enemies had been defeated and had made, been made a public spectacle. This is a picture of a conquering king, a triumphal display of victory in war, of one who has conquered over his enemy and now is making a public spectacle, a victory parade, lording it over him. Jesus said to his disciples, you're not like the Gentiles, lording your authority over each other. 
But Jesus never said that he would not lord over or make a public spectacle of the devil when he has defeated him. Because that's why Jesus came, to defeat the devil. And he didn't do it in secret. Jesus didn't come in secret. Jesus didn't live in secret. Jesus didn't die in secret. And Jesus did not defeat the devil in secret. And he did not celebrate that victory in secret. He made a public spectacle of it. He triumphed over them in it. Your worship is warfare. And worship is one of the most powerful means. It is the most powerful means by which you can conduct the warfare of the kingdom. Because worship in, is not one thing. Worship is, it's our singing, it's our praying, it's our learning, it's our reading, it's our teaching, it's, it's everything, it's our giving. It's how we parent our kids, it's how we perform on the job, it's what we say, it's what we do, it's, it's our life, it's the totality of our life. That is our worship. This here is part of our worship. This is when the army assembles together to conduct a very intentional, purposeful warfare every week, a warfare in the heavenlies. That's why the Bible says don't forsake assembling of yourselves together because God's called his army to assemble together to conduct the warfare of the kingdom. And you are in a warfare whether you believe it or not. It really doesn't matter you know, sometimes people will say to me, well, Pastor, I just don't believe that. And my response is, it doesn't really matter whether you believe that or not. Whether you believe something doesn't determine whether it's real or not. Well, I don't believe in God. Okay, that's fine. You will one day. Whether you believe in God or not doesn't determine whether God's real or not. It just determines whether uh, it determines something about you, but it doesn't determine anything about God. You understand that, right? What you've what you believe, what you understand about the warfare you're involved in, what you think about it, what you believe about it, has no impact on the warfare. It doesn't make it less real. It may put you in much more danger. It may put those around you in more danger. Kind of like that resource officer in Florida who did not do his job, who did not do his due diligence in warfare and go into that school and take care of that shooter. For whatever reason, he was almost at retirement. And maybe he thought, you know what? I'm not going to mess my retirement up by going in there and getting shot by somebody. Well, he should have never been on the battlefield. He, he wasn't qualified to be a soldier. Now, I'm a police chaplain. And I love the guys, and, but I, I know guys who would, uh, there's just no excuse. Listen, we are called to something much greater than being a police officer or being a soldier in an earthly army. We are called children of God. We are called to assemble. We are part of the host of the Lord of hosts. We are his army. And the warfare and the battle that we fight is much more deadly than any school shooting or any natural war that's taking place on planet Earth right now. Because all those things can kill your body. But I'm telling you what, we're dealing with a warfare that has eternal consequences. And it's time that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ begin to understand who she really is because she has bought into the lie and the propaganda of the enemy now for too long. And we've been lulled into believing that we are something else other than what God calls us to be. And we're so worried about offending men and women that we now don't care whether we offend God or not. Because we have bought the lie of the enemy that somehow, if we're offensive, if we tell people the truth then somehow that's going to exclude them from being able to, what, have faith? How can they have faith if they don't know the truth? If they never hear the truth, how are they going to have faith in the truth? So we've settled purposefully or 
because we've been deceived into it. When I say we, I'm talking about the collective church and, and specifically the church in America. That we can't say and do certain things. Now, I'm not the pastor of every church. I'm only the pastor of Christ Fellowship Church. And I can't worry about what other churches are preaching and teaching today and what other churches are doing today. I am only responsible right now for, for, for what I communicate to you. And I cannot allow you to go on believing things like that if you do. Or maybe you don't believe things like that, but maybe you've never thought about your worship as warfare. Maybe you've never really thought about the importance of what transpires here in this place every Sunday. Now, I haven't even got past the... Actually, I am in the second page, but I haven't started the second page of my message, but that's okay. We'll just stretch this out if we need to, but I do feel, I do feel while I'm on the subject of things that transpire here, I do want to share this with you. I didn't have this in my notes, but I want to... I thought of this when um, uh, Amanda, little Josephine, Amanda's little daughter back there was singing before the service. I went up when I was greeting and, and she was singing. Now, we've heard babies cry here today, haven't we? We hear babies coo and giggle. Have, have you heard any intelligible speech come out of any of these nursing babies? Intelligible. Have you been able to understand what any of these nursing babies are saying? I mean, little Josephine was singing before the service, but I couldn't understand what she was singing. Do you hear that warfare right there? What do you hear when you hear babies cry? What do you hear when you hear babies fuss? What do you hear when you hear babies sing, but you can't understand a word that comes out of their mouth? It's just noise. It's just gobbledygook. What do you hear? I don't know. I mean, just hear babies. What are they teaching you? Well, they're not teaching me anything because I can't understand anything they're saying. They're just cute. Well, what is God here? You want me to tell you what he hears? Do you want to know what God hears when he hears babies? I know some of you know what God hears. But maybe some of you don't know what God hears. And equally important, it's not only what God hears, it's what the enemy hears. Psalm 8, verse 2. Remember, we're talking about the warfare of our worship. Let me just begin in, in, in uh, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Listen. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. He didn't say adolescents and preteens. He said babes and nursing infants. What intelligible sound comes out of the mouth of a babe, a nursing infant? What do they say that you can understand? Anything? Nothing. But what does the scripture say? Do you believe the scripture? What does it say? It says God has ordained strength. Where? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. Why? Because of his enemies. That God would silence the enemy and the avenger. How? 
by what comes out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants. Now, when we brought children back into our service, we didn't do it because of that scripture. That scripture was not on my radar. We did it because we wanted to have children raised in an intergenerational atmosphere of worship so that hopefully the tide could be stemmed of kids aging out of youth group and then deciding they don't want to go to church anymore because they've never had to deal with big church. So we put children in silos, all their spiritual development, and then we turn them loose from that silo into the world thinking, okay, now they're ready. No, actually, you've just spent 18 years not preparing them, but actually hindering them. You've done the exact opposite. You have not only not made them ready, you've actually prepared them for the wrong thing. But now you're expecting them to do the right thing. That's why we brought kids back in, understanding that it, it will be distracting, understanding that it could be uncomfortable for mothers as well as the other people sitting around in the congregation. And I can tell you today that there are some people that do not come to church here because they don't want to have to deal with babies in the, during the sermon. But yet, what does God say? God says that he has ordained strength out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants because of his enemies that he would silence the enemy and the avenger. All those little coos and cries, those are battle cries. You might not hear them as battle cries, but that's what God says they are. And that's absolutely how the enemy hears them. But we've been sold a bill of goods by the world and given all the reasons why we shouldn't have our children in church with us. But yet, here's what God declares. Now, do you think the enemy wants children in an environment of worship where their little coos and cries and funny little noises and their screams, even screaming perhaps in disobedience to their parents. Do you think the enemy wants that taking place in the context of worship when God's army is assembled together? No, he does not want that taking place. Because that is active warfare. That's like lobbing bombs and softening the defenses as the army's getting ready to go in and take the ground. It's, it might be meaningless, even hindering to us, but it's absolutely meaningful and powerful and hindering to the enemy, and that's what we want. We want to hinder our enemy. So from now on, when you hear babies in church, just think about the warfare that's being conducted. Now, that doesn't mean parents don't need to take them out sometimes and, and, and deal with things. Listen, but that's why we're doing a parenting seminar. And the parenting seminar is not really just for parents. It's really for all of us. Because we need to understand our responsibility as a congregation, as an army. Because we are responsible for, for each other. We all have different functions. We might not all be carrying the same gun. We might not all be placed in the same position. But we're all part of the same army and we all function together and, and we are all here for one another. So we're here for these moms and these dads. We're here for these little nursing babes. We're here to show them, to help them, to raise them up. We're here because they are and we are, whether they're, whether they're one month old or whether they're 75 years old, we are the army of God. And God assembles us together in worship, and he says, your worship is warfare. And it's not just warfare coming from the pastor because he's preaching a sermon. 
It's not just warfare because you're singing songs and you're trying to understand what you're singing and be purposeful, intentional about it. He says it's even warfare because the very cries and coos and noises coming out of those babies, it's warfare, not because the babies know what they're doing. They have no clue what they're doing. Read the scripture closely. God says, I have ordained this. They have no clue what they're doing. They just are trying to get that piece of candy. They're just trying to convince mom that they really should be able to do what they want to do. They have no concept of of what I'm even talking about right now. And that reality does not diminish the power of who they are and the power of what is coming out of their mouth. Not because they ordain it, but because God says he has ordained it. Now, if God has ordained strength out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, and he stills and quiets the enemy and the avenger, then can you imagine the other things that we do in the context of this worship service that are warfare, that are absolutely deadly to our enemies, that our enemy does not want you who have the capacity to understand and reason. Because the enemy knows that, that when you begin to know the truth, and this goes right back to what Jesus said, when you know the truth, the truth will make you free. Make you free to do what? It will, it will liberate you from that concentration camp. It will equip you, give you something, and now you're going to go out and you are going to oppose the very enemy that held you captive for all of your life. That's what God wants to do. This is how we take the ground of the kingdom. This is how we're going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his image and the knowledge of his glory. That's not going to just happen magically. That's going to happen because God has ordained and raised up an army and he has commanded that army to go out and do this. And your equipping time is this time. I'm not here to preach to lost people. I want as many lost people as possible to come to these services. But my job this time on Sunday mornings is not supposed to be for the lost We've got countless churches trying to, trying to make their churches appealing to lost people. And they've totally missed what God has said in his word. Listen, this is a place to equip you to go to the lost. The lost aren't coming here, have you noticed? They don't want to come here. Why? Because they're lost. Well, yeah, Pastor, but if we gave candy and pizza and Starbucks coffee and made a real appealing environment, maybe they would want to come. Maybe they would. But now we've just, we've just destroyed our army. We've just gone in reverse and done the exact opposite of what God told us to do with the, with the army he's called to assemble here. Listen, the lost is out there. You're here to be equipped to go and meet them. Where do you meet them? You meet them on your job. You meet them at the park. You meet them at mops. You meet them everywhere. You meet them right where you are. That's where you minister to the lost. That's where you communicate the truth. And hopefully the gospel in you, the gospel coming out of your mouth, breaks into their heart, breaks through their hardness by the mercy of God, by the grace of God. And they're not lost anymore. And you know what you do then? You say, come on. You're not lost anymore. You're part of the army. Now come with me because you need to be equipped. You need to be trained to do what? To go back out into the world and keep fighting the battle. What we do here matters. Whether you realize it or not, it does. You might not understand the power of it. You might understand how it all works. I certainly don't. And I'm your pastor. I'm just going to make that confession to you. This is, this is so powerful and mysterious, but it is so fascinating. It's not based on how many goosebumps you have. It's not based on any of that. It's based on what God has ordained. He has ordained this assembly for a purpose. And if we are serious about 
doing what God has commanded us to do in his world, in his word, in this world, then we need to begin to understand how important this is. Because what we're dealing with are eternal things. We're on an eternal mission. It doesn't end at 12 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. What you're called to is eternal. It doesn't have an end. You're not different on Monday morning than you are right now, or you shouldn't be. The warfare you're conducting right now is not any different than the, the warfare you're going to conduct tomorrow morning. It's just being conducted in a different context. So our worship is warfare. All right, we're going to stop there. We're going to pick up next week right where we left off. And we're going to keep talking about this. Because at some point in time, I don't expect the world to get this, but the church needs to have an epiphany, needs to have a, a moment where they realize the problem is not with our politicians. The problem is not with TV. The problem is not with the media. The problem is not with the police. The problem is not with the outlaws. It's not with the in-laws. The problem comes back to the doorstep of the church. The problem is the church has not obeyed the command of God. And the church has not been serious about her mission. I want Christ Fellowship Church to know and to be serious about the mission that God has given to us. And you can help other people understand that truth. So let's get ready and come to the Lord's table. My charge to you really is very, very simple today. I want, to, I want to challenge you, I want to charge you to really think about what we've talked about. I want you to really pray and contemplate. I want you to reflect. I want you to renew your mind to these realities. I want you to begin to see your assembling in this place for worship in a different way than perhaps you have before. I want you to begin to ask God to reveal to you the magnitude and the power of the things that transpire here. Confessing our faith, the power that has to oppose powers and principalities singing the doxology at the end of this service, giving thanks to God, making that declaration into the heavenlies. The smallest, littlest things that have no seeming significance. I want you to begin to ask God to help you see the significance in what we call worship. And to help you begin to see and know the power in that. Amen.